thank you so much for for coming on today Bridget I couldn't think of anyone better to have this conversation with we've obviously spoke a few times on the phone now which I really really appreciate about the work that you're doing and the conversation that we need to have and specifically why it's so amazing that you're here today to share it with potentially a slightly different audience and why that's going to be relevant for um, some business owners and some people in, in the fitness industry. But just before we start, I'd love to just read off a couple of the statistics that you sent me from from your own research just to like set the tone for this conversation, if that's okay. So there were many very powerful stories and statistics on the surveys that you sent me. These are These are just three that for me really stood out. And the reason I'd like to share these to start this conversation today is I think as men, we can often think can't be that bad. You know, what what are they kind of going on about, right? Because we just don't have these conditions. And maybe even some women, if they're lucky enough to not experience some of these conditions, there are some some women that I know that are like, can't be that bad, right? So just to set set the tone a little bit, with the survey that you sent me, 77% of the women you surveyed scored at least an eight out of 10. So an eight, nine or a 10 out of 10 on the impact that their female health condition had on their quality of life and only one percent were four or less so virtually all of these women were at least a five and the vast majority three quarters and above were an eight out of ten so this is like a severe impact on quality of life right so i mean we could just use that one statistic and that is the foundation for needing to have this conversation there's just a couple more that i thought were really powerful the majority of the women you surveyed, I didn't actually even want to count how many, said that it took six or more appointments to get their diagnosis. And I just can't comprehend that with the current NHS waiting times, six appointments can obviously be years and years, right? And I, I just can't comprehend the ex- extra stress that that causes, which of course can make conditions worse. You've got the compound effect of not getting the right treatment, which is going to make these conditions more severe. So that was for me really sad and really powerful and one that is is potentially the most relevant for what you're doing and and we're going to talk about not that to detract from the impact of on people's lives at a personal level which is of course the most important thing but something that also needs to be addressed is the issue this is having on the economy and and for companies right and 13 percent of the women you surveyed said they took at least nine sick days a month from work which I mean that's two working weeks really it's 50 percent, and that's actually a little bit worse than it sounds as well because a lot of these women said that it used to be more before they got their diagnosis and some of them also said that they don't actually work anymore so i think for anyone still not entirely sure like is there a problem here is it that bad what is the gender health gap hopefully those statistics show that we have this problem here isn't really being spoken about it's not really being researched it's not really being funded and it's having a massive impact on women at a personal level at professional career development level and it's also having an impact on companies and on the economy so with all of that being said i I couldn't think of anyone better to to speak to about this than yourself so thank you so much for being here so yeah Bridget over to you really tell us a little bit about who you are what you do and obviously your backstory and journey that took you here today to be conducting work like the research that I just quoted there yeah um no thank you so much for having me I think it's a really important conversation to be to be holding um so thanks for giving it this platform as well um so my name is Bridget Gorham I'm a health economics policy advisor at the NHS Confederation and I'm currently undertaking a a pretty wide study focused on the relationship between investment in women's health and wider economic growth throughout England specifically um 
Uh, sorry. <laughs> um, so I think I've always, there's no like one moment where I can really point to that indicates how I kind of followed this trajectory. I think I've always been quite passionate about equality. Um, I'm a middle child, so I think from from for as long as I can remember, I've always wanted things to be fair. Um, and uh, once you start seeing inequality, it's kind of like you have these goggles on and you mm -hmm. can't stop seeing it. Um, and I think having you know, joined the NHS Confederation with a specific focus on um, health and the economy. Women, I think, ma making up half the workforce, 80% of the NHS and social care workforce. I mean, I think it's a huge kind of uh, group of people, if you even want to call it a group. It's half of the population that's consistently overlooked, ignored. Um, and health is a fundamental human right, even if we take the economy out of this conversation. I think it's just such a shame and really a, a kind of human rights violation almost that women don't have uh, a standard level of care that they need and deserve. And so I'm really passionate about women's health, but also um, I think in addition to the moral kind of arguments that we can make about this, the economic argument is probably in this uh, climate of austerity, what's really going to shift the dial, I think, and really kind of bring to the table some, some leaders from the treasury and central government um, around you know, what we can do in a time of, like I said, economic kind of austerity and uh, stagnation. So, so yeah. I love that. The, the reason why I love your work in particular and, and just how you worded it there is that we should not have to reduce female health to a number. Of course, we shouldn't have to. But one common kind of theme that I was hearing like one thread throughout a lot of the, the talks and seminars that I was going to and I've met you at some which is amazing was that okay if businesses are going to support their female employees with this like ultimately how does it translate to their bottom line because a lot of companies are struggling so whilst it is unfortunate that we do need to look at it from this perspective ultimately if it helps change education at a societal level if it helps more women get supported then ultimately is it a bad thing to look at it through this lens and whilst me and you are, are really confident to sit here and say investing in women's health is a great investment we know that there isn't really that research out there um conducted in a way which allows us to, to quantify and provide like a number right which i think is obviously what you're working on at the moment is to be able to say for every pound spent on on women's health we get this return on investment so um yeah i, I absolutely love that because Actually, as you've just said, it hopefully is what will be needed based on this current climate to actually really push this landscape forward. And I think in a few years time, we're going to look at the landscape and it's going to be very different. And that's going to be largely down to the work that, that you've done, which is is exciting isn't it no pressure <laughs> no pressure you're already you're already living up to the living up to it though so I, I think you'll i think you'll hit it um so yeah i mean just to give us a little bit more backstory on on yourself and and maybe going as far back as you'd like your childhood or your upbringing your qualifications and um, you're from was it chicago initially boston but it was boston sorry yeah my, my bad um so yeah Big like, mistake. No, give us a yeah a lot of beef there <laughs> Um, yeah, so I was born and raised in uh, New England and in the U.S. Um, I did my undergraduate degree in political science and Spanish. Um, I spent some time during my undergraduate degree um, in South America. So I lived in Quito and uh, Cusco for a while. And um, 
there I volunteered at uh, two local schools, which was really nice and just really eye-opening, again, looking at this from a gender lens. Um, some of the inequities there in terms of girls having the kind of funda fundamental right to an education. Um, and so that really, again, you, you have this inequality goggles on all the time, and it's just like it, it really left an indelible mark on me, um, seeing how so much of uh, kind of the populations that I worked with really struggled to access a fundamental human right to an education. Um, I then uh, took a, a kind of conventional route out of underground, if you uh, undergrad, if you will. Um, I, I went to work in consulting at Deloitte for four years. Um, and at the time, it was a very sexy career because it was like I was traveling every week. Um, I was working. I worked in sales and trading, so the banking, mm -hmm. capital markets industry. Um, and then COVID hit, and I wasn't traveling anymore, and it really allowed me, uh, alongside probably the rest of the world, to pause and, and reflect um, on, you know, what it was that I wanted to be doing with my life and, and whether I thought this was where, like, consulting was where I could actually leave an impact. And those experiences in South America really st uh, stuck with me. Um, and so I started to explore degrees in human rights, which is um, how I found the program at the London School of Economics. Um, so I applied, was accepted, um, moved over to London, uh, did my master's in human rights, which was amazing. It was such a great program. Um, and I really liked it because it was like a practical approach to human rights, so not just the theories around it, but like how this works in reality. So a lot of human rights law and international criminal law. Um, and then I was it was a really interesting and, and kind of a bit of a struggle trying to bridge the gap between banking and finance and human rights. Yeah, um, somewhat contradictory yeah, sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And so I was like, I don't really know how I'm going to do this. Um, and then this position in health economics popped up on um, LinkedIn, I believe it was. And um, I thought, that's quite an interesting bridge between the two worlds because obviously you've got the economics lens to a kind of critical human rights issue. And so um, in my mind, it made sense. And to you know my now current boss's mind, it also obviously made sense. <laughs> um, and so that's, so that's how I ended up uh, in the role I am now. Um, and so for the first six months in the role, I was really focused on kind of figuring out what the NHS does, how it functions. <laughs> like, And I can't say to you that I've entirely figured that out. I don't know if many people have. Um, no one knows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so it was really the first six months was getting my bearings um, and working with my colleague Michael Wood on – uh, a whole host of pieces that were assessing the relationship between the NHS and the wider economy. So um, we published a piece uh, surrounding the return on investment for every one pound that goes into the NHS. Um, it, the piece found that for every one pound that goes in, you can expect to see four pounds return on investment through increased um, workforce participation and productivity. Um, we then delved into that figure a little bit more and looked at investment across a range of care settings, so community um, primary acute and mental health care settings. Um, and we found we, we kind of it, it was almost like what everyone was saying, right? Prevention is a more economic 
economically effective way of approaching health yeah. and care. Um, but we quantified it. We were able to show that for every one pound that goes into primary and community care settings, you can ex- expect to see 14 pounds return on investment. Whereas I think acute Acute was still relatively high, but it was less than that. So it kind of substantiated what we had been saying uh, historically around, you know, prevention is where you want to be putting your your pounds. Um, Because obviously down the line, acute care is much more costly, reactive, etc. And then in, I believe it was in March of 2023, so almost a year ago, when the Department of Health announced 25 million pounds in funding for the establishment or expansion of women's health hubs throughout England, um, which really struck a chord with me. Um, I think it was a really natural opportunity to start pursuing a bit of a niche, if you will, if, if you even want to call it a niche, I don't know, um, because again, it is 51% of the population. But um, I thought it was interesting when they announced the funding that they stipulated that it wouldn't be recurrent. So it was very much a one-off lump sum, uh, quite a minimal amount of funding as well. I think in the headlines, everyone thinks, oh, 25 million pounds, that's a ton of money. But when you're thinking about half of the population, it's really not that much. Um, Particularly when you divide it equally across the 42 integrated care systems, each integrated care system received just under 600K to basically establish a women's health hub, um, which are intended to be one-stop shops for women's health needs. So in theory, you could go into a hub, have a coil fitted, have your blood pressure taken, and have a smear performed. Um, Whereas today, those are three separate appointments uh, with three separate kind of commissioning styles. So sexual health falls under the local authority. and then obviously your, your smear would be through your GP. Um, so it's meant to kind of liaise all of those different services, which in theory is a really great, great idea. Yeah. Um, and it, it's kind of what I know you do a lot of work around holistic health. And I think that's that's a really great step in the right direction of like seeing women and people generally as, you know, whole creatures that have a whole host of needs. Um, and, and really, you're saving a lot of time um, if, if you're able to do a whole host of those things in, in one appointment. Um, so, so yeah, so um, we're, so, so essentially, yes, they announced the funding, they stipulated that it was non-recurrent. And I kind of then started to look into the economics of this, like, how can we make the case to Treasury that this is something that not only needs to be sustainably funded, but also robustly funded. Um, and there was a, a kind of a dearth of evidence around the economics of women's health. Um, there were some very specific studies on kind of the return on investment of a specific kind of femtech technology, maybe, or um, uh, endometriosis and the cost to the economy. Um, But I I found two kind of common themes throughout the existing research, one of which was that um, it was very siloed. So it was very much like, you know, a specific condition like breast cancer, for example. And it didn't really look at women more holistically. It looked at specific issues that were very siloed. And then the second bit was that they were oftentimes quite cost-heavy. So they focused on the cost of a specific condition to the economy through what you mentioned at the onset of this podcast. Um, so uh, 
um, missed days of work, uh, lower productivity rates and things like that. Um, but I think the twist, and, the, and this is what my work intends to do, is really show the potential of for further investment in the space. Because I think when you say, for example, that endometriosis costs the UK economy, whatever the figure is, I forget what, what the actual number is, like s- certain kind of couple million at least quid a year. Um, it seems like it's a really big problem, which it is, right? But it's also interesting, particularly in the realm of women's health, if we think about a lot of these conditions, some of the kind of investments that we can make are so minimal. I mean, in certain cases, yes, we need much more kind of advanced technologies, which will require robust investment. But when you ta- when you think about a common theme that came up in the survey as well was that women are just not being listened to. So the six, I think it was the six GP appointments or the six appointments to get a diagnosis. That obviously costs the economy because it's, you know, a referral, a costly referral or, you know, another wasted appointment. And those types of uh, things are, can just so easily be avoided mm. if we're listening to women. And that's free. Yeah, there's no innovation yeah. needed there. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that wasn't too, too no, long-winded of a yeah, synopsis of my work. Yeah, no, that was, that was really great. And, yeah, I'm so excited to, to see it, obviously, coming from the space that I come from. A large part of what we do <clears throat> has to be, apologies, has to be translating that work into a bottom line unfortunately of course we do work b2c as well well that's no longer relevant but a lot of people do still want to see okay okay if i'm going to invest this money in my health yeah i want to feel better and look better but ultimately i also want to be maybe a better performer if they're in a performance-based career role or if they just have a lot of career you know aspirations right so even when we're working b2c it's important to try and have this research if possible so yeah i'm you know i'd love your work um what I think would be great is to go back a little bit further, if that's okay. So obviously, me and you are going to be aware of like, why is there a gender research gap? Why is there a gender health gap? But And I kind of take for granted that that makes sense to me. But a few recent conversations I've actually had, which I found really interesting, were like, that sounds ridiculous. How could we be in England? Was it like the sixth most developed economy in the world? We have the NHS. How and why could women be receiving a worse standard or level of healthcare and I thought you know what that's actually a good question because it potentially doesn't make sense at first if you're someone that isn't aware of of what we're aware of right so yeah going back kind of historically how have we ended up here where we have this gender health and research gap yeah so I think um it's at the heart of this issue is that we have always lived and continue to exist in a patriarchal society. So medicine and the NHS itself um, were built and founded by men for men. Um, Studying, it's kind of the male default permeates everything um, from medicine to even seatbelts. If you've not read Invisible Women, I highly recommend that. It's such a good read. Um, But I think we women and our bodies are consistently seen as like an aberration so um we may have i've I've thought about this a lot recently too in terms of like maternity there seems to be a lot of research into maternity um not enough obviously but that seems to be an area that has more than than others um and that, that i think is just like an obvious area as to where women differ from 
from men. We bring life into the world. Um, but there are so many other kind of quote-unquote invisible conditions that have been sidelined, siloed, not talked about enough. Um, and I think that has historically created the, the, the gap that we live in today in that these topics, first and foremost, are taboo, um, still very taboo, even though more and more people are open about them, talking about them, advocating for change. Um, and that obviously doesn't help it. If we're not talking about it, the gender, the gender health gap will continue to exist. Um, but also research. Research is a huge thing. Um, and, and disaggregation of data so sex disaggregated data is also important and historically hasn't always been prioritized. And so back to the point about women's bodies and, and kind of looking into the aberration of women's bodies, um, I think the there are some kind of clear instances where women are different from men medically. But there are also, for example, a number of conditions that affect men and women alike, albeit differently or disproportionately, like heart conditions, autoimmune diseases, um, so on and so forth. And they're just, we've not historically prioritized disaggregating that the data and the research. We've not, you know, it, it, I forget the statistics, but around like testing animals, um, and in research, it's like it's been predominantly tested on male mice or animals or whatever. I saw that thirty only thirty four percent was conducted in in female mice in cardiovascular disease. So the majority of those recommendations are being applied to women, but coming from male rodent studies. Yeah, yeah. So why are we here? I guess my 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 one line answer would be because we have always lived in a patriarchal society. Um, and we continue to live in a patriarchal society. Um, so I think that just speaks to the, the point that this is not just a women's issue, this is a man's issue as well. And that's why I'm so grateful for you for kind of having this platform and also advocating for change because men also have a big role to play in this agenda. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I obviously agree with you on that for sure. So yeah, I, pr I appreciate you saying that. I think that sets the tone really, really nicely. And that's, that's really insightful. With the current work that you're doing, and with um, the meeting that you had yesterday, is there anything from that that you can share that you'd, yeah, you'd like to, to let everyone know about what, kind of what the next few months look like for you? Yeah. Um, so I can share because there were press releases. So it's all publicized now. So um, yesterday I attended the Women's Health uh, Summit, uh, which was led by Dame Leslie Regan, the Women's Health Ambassador for England, um, Victoria Ak Atkins, who's currently the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. Um, and who else was there? Lucy Chapel, who's the chief exec of the NIHR. Um and there's someone else really important who I'm just blanking on currently, but let's go with that for now. Um, uh, oh, Maria Caulfield, the Minister of um, Women's, the Minister for Women's Health and Mental Health. So those were the four kind of key people there yesterday. Um, and they made a series of announcements. So first they reflected on uh, this, the kind of progress that the Women's Health Strategy has made to date. Um, so they mentioned things like HRT being much more affordable, um, 
they mentioned uh, women who have uh, experienced pregnancy loss having more support um, in the workplace and beyond. Um, the women's health hubs they mentioned as a, a kind of win for the women's health strategy as well. Um, so lots of reflections and then plans for the year ahead. Um, so I think the biggest announcement was 50 million pounds in funding for um, maternity research. Um, so, so yeah, that was really good. Um, I think Victoria Atkins is uh, different to her predecessor in that she is a woman um, and she's had personal experiences of this gender health gap. Um, in in maternity care specifically. So it's something that she's very passionate about. Um, I think what was interesting is that they did announce a whole host of new services like um, all women being offered a, an appointment, a GP appointment at eight weeks after giving birth as like a standard approach. I didn't realize that wasn't a standard approach. <laughs> it's quite disconcerting, but okay. Um, um, mental health support for, for women who have just given birth. Um, so that it was very pregnancy-focused. Um, she did also say, and I'm quite curious about this, she said um, that each system, so each of the 42 integrated care systems, would have at least one women's health hub, um, which is very interesting because obviously I mentioned the funding that was announced uh, in, in support of the establishment or expansion of women's health hubs. But in response to NHS England's call for systems to break even for the financial year, a lot of systems ended up rescinding that funding. Um, so they no longer have their 595K to, to establish a women's health hub. Um, so I'm curious, a, a lot of, a common theme throughout, it's like, this all sounds great, but how is it actually going to happen in practice if there's no additional funding announced? I mean, the research funding is great. Um, and, and I think research is obviously important because there's a gender research gap as well, as you mentioned, but the services element of it and the training and how, what we find from the research is actually implemented on the ground is equally mm. important. If we don't have the resources to do that, then it's kind of a moot point. Would you say you're optimistic about the work you're doing helping to find that investment once you can prove that it's going to have a positive ROI? Let's see. I mean, what's interesting, and I know we've talked about this in the past, um, is that at almost every conference that I go to, people say, we really need this argument. We really need these numbers and the kind of the quantification of the, the business case, yeah. if you will. Um, so I am optimistic that it will be useful um the extent to which it can actually persuade the treasury let's see um i think oftentimes at a high level those decisions can be really difficult um especially when the kind of national focus is a lot it's centered on you know acutes um and emergency care and just putting out fires consistently um, I think what's interesting is where local leaders can have a real impact in this agenda. So when push came to shove and um, integrated care boards were sitting down and figuring out how on earth are we going to break even uh, for this financial year, what can we throw at the black hole to to kind of, you know, be, to, to achieve this? Um, there were a lot of conversations where leaders were actually saying, no, we need to protect the women's health money. Amazing. Locally, yeah. 
And um, I think this type of argument could really help local leaders to defend and, and kind of make the case and, you know, convince others to think more long term and recognize the value of women. Because at the heart of this, I think, is, is truly that we don't recognize, A, that the extent of the problem, which you mentioned at the start, but also be the value of women and, and how how on earth can we quantify the value of women? Like, obviously, we can look at the workforce, right? Um, and that's the most conventional route. But there's so much going on beyond that. Um, so looking at the women's roles as carers, um, and that's not typically factored into economic arguments, the kind of informal labor element to it. If you think about generational health and the fact that healthier women have fewer and healthier children, and that kind of just passes on through generations um and there, there are just so many intangibles and like i almost like to think of it as an onion and there's so many different layers to the onion right um and i mean so women in the workforce is a huge one women in the health and social care workforce is another one that is so often overlooked because i feel like consistently in the news we're talking about the nhs having workforce issues and a workforce crisis and it's just like well, 80% of that workforce is women, We're and what, women, are you, yeah. Yeah, what are you doing to support the women? The NHS work, long-term workforce plan didn't mention the menopause once. And we know that women are leaving the workforce due to the menopause at unprecedented rates. One in ten women are expected to leave the work, workforce due to the menopause. It's just, it's such a missed opportunity, I think, to really show women that we recognize they exist and they are instrumental pivotal in our kind of workforce and our wider economy but also just to be a more inclusive employer it does it blows my mind because i fully appreciate there's limited funding you need to put out the fires as you said and it's hard to zoom out and think generationally but when you have the situation where 80 percent of the nhs and i, I didn't know this 80 percent of the nhs are, uh, workforce are women and we know from your research and from there's some other studies, I think that there was a really big study done in, in Holland, right? It had 40,000 women in it. That, and you're one saying that, okay, so, uh, a large 13% of women are taking nine sick days per month, which is half their working week. And then you're saying one out of 10 women are dropping out of work due to menopause symptoms. I believe the amount of women that are contemplating it or looking for a career change in menopause to help manage their symptoms is even higher, right? I've seen a few uh, studies on that. I imagine that's maybe around more flexible or remote working to help manage menopause probably. So for me, it's a real simple, 80% of the workforce are women. We know there's research showing that these women are unable to work or are dropping out of work due to these health issues. We've got an underlying issue in the NHS. Surely addressing women's health is what the foundation of the NHS therefore is. Yeah, 100%. I couldn't have said it better myself. I I just wanted to say it out loud like that to make sure that like I was understanding <laughs> the situation correctly because it just sounds ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I was on a call a few weeks ago where um, some uh, NHS employees, women, were talking about how to get free period products in their workplace. I mean, if the NHS doesn't supply period products i guess it well so not as a whole it would be based on the trust or, yeah. the, or the, you know the hospital that they're working in um but it's just it's not standard practice um and if you think about it on if you're in the kind of the operating room and you flood 
and think about it. We, we live in London. Think about remote hospitals. Where's your closest shop to, to get period products? Like probably, I don't know, 15, 20-minute drive. So, so, I mean, it's just really simple things that we could be doing to better support women, to, to illustrate to women that we know they exist and they have their own needs. Um, it's just such a missed opportunity. Yeah, that, yeah, crazy. So I've, I've one of my clients is the head of hematology at two hospitals, great guy, great doctor. And um, our our version of the NHS app in where, where I'm from has a different name to it because of, I'll probably get the story wrong, so please no one quote me on this, but someone sitting on a board didn't like the name or there was some sort of comment or whatever. So he's like, the amount of people that I deal with that like, like don't have access to the app or think they can't find the app because it has a different name and you know and you're just like like, what are you even saying to me like this makes absolutely no sense that like there'd be a different version of the nhs app with a different name that i would log into as a patient to view my results that i wouldn't know how to find or look for because everyone else in the country and the standard recommendation is the app's called this this is where you go to log in and view your patient portal but yeah sorry that just popped into my head um but yeah it's it's a it's a it's a it's a crazy landscape we'll, we'll definitely try and end the podcast episode on all the positive the positive things that are happening and, and the positive fu- um, predictions for the future but what i'd love to know is that if you've got any thoughts on your work in particular and just the landscape in general in companies so if you're listening to if you're someone listening to this that is um, you know a c-suite position or, or owns the company or you're just a female employee in a company that would like your workplace to have more support and inclusivity around this do you think that even if you actually mentioned earlier that your work you know may or may not translate at a treasury level because that's obviously very difficult do you think that when you start publishing what you find it will help more companies to invest in female health because they understand that actually it'll be more profitable for them in the long run or what's your hope or thoughts there i hope so obviously i hope so and i'm quite optimistic because i think more and more employers are kind of open to the idea um, like the menopause definitely has opened floodgates in terms of, you know, women speaking out and also employers kind of realizing that this is not just a health issue, but it's also a business issue. Yeah. Um, so I am hopeful about that. I think the menopause has had its moment um, and will continue to have its moment, rightfully so. Um, but some of the areas that we need to start speaking more about as we just discussed i think our our menstrual kind of leave policies um providing basic products in the workplace um and i think flexible working but also knowing that flexible working can often be a cop-out um so just saying oh you know employees are able to work from home whenever they want um doesn't really cut it because you know I've, i've spoken and i'm sure you saw this in the in the survey a lot of women are saying, well, yeah, I have to work from home because I have to be next to the toilet because I'm changing my pad every 20 minutes. But is that person really able to even work remotely? So I think being aware of of those kinds of needs and being more open, and a lot of it is a cultural shift because most women still aren't comfortable talking to their manager about their specific, quote-unquote, women's health needs. Um, 
rightfully so, I think, because there's there is a level of like fear of discrimination about you know if I go to my employer and say I'm having a really painful period, I'm gonna take the rest of the afternoon off. Will I be seen as just like a woman? You know, like you almost don't, yeah. particularly in male dominated environments, you almost don't want to point to any more differences between you and your yeah. colleagues. Um, so there is, yeah, there is a lot to do. But I, I, I am hopeful of, um, yeah, employers and, and more and more employers recognizing that they have a part to play in this agenda. I, I think what you just said there was really interesting because I always just assumed women would want to talk about it in the workplace. It was just the environment, you know, who they're talking to, their manager. And then I was chatting with a, a, a lawyer. Um, she's awesome. She's a partner at her firm. And she was like, no, even if I felt like I could, I never would. And I was like, oh, okay, like, interesting. You know, just made the assumption that that wouldn't be the case. So like, why is that? She was like, well, I wanted to be a name partner. Simple as that. She was like, any female health related stuff that's cropped up along the way can, she was like, I lie about it. I always lie about why well, I need a sick day if I need a sick day. And I was like, oh, sad. Really sad. Really sad. Mm. But it still is seen as, a, a taboo, B, a sign of weakness, probably. Because I think at the heart of this is that women say they're in pain, but oftentimes that's discounted. We're told we're being dramatic or that, you know, it's just in our heads or, come on, it's just a period. Women have been menstruating since the since the genesis yeah. of time. Like, just get on with it. And so if you're speaking out about it and your doctor is not taking you seriously, what do you think? Do you think your employer will take you seriously? Probably not. Um, so it's a, it's a whole, there's a whole ecosystem at play here and we all have our part to play in it. That's actually a really interesting point that if the doctor takes you seriously and you get a, a prescription, a diagnosis, whatever it might be, then obviously that gives you something to talk to your, your boss about. Of course, they're more likely to take it seriously, which I'm not saying is right, but it's come from the doctor. But if you're talking to your boss and they're saying, okay, well, what is actually wrong with you? Oh, well, nothing. Like, there's no diagnosis, there's no whatever because your doctor hasn't took it seriously or whatever. Then, of course, the boss is going to maybe be less inclined to be like, okay, there's a more serious problem here. Yeah. Which I then guess comes back to the need for women's health hubs where you actually have specialists in that and condensed a a appointments for a more holistic overview. When do you think, if at all, that we will see some of those? Um, what would be like your optimistic prediction for the future? So some already exist on the ground. So even before the, the women's health strategy was announced, um, systems did have a women's health hub in place, even though they perhaps didn't call it that. Um, so I believe at the time or when the women's health strategy was published, um, they they had they published a report around the kind of hubs that existed on the round that fit their quote-unquote criteria for what a women's health hub is. Um, so there were 17 on the ground. I'm curious um, as to, because, because of what I mentioned previously about systems kind of rescinding their funding, some systems rescinding their funding um, in order to break even, I'm curious as to how the definition of a hub might shift. So a lot of systems have been talking about their hub being virtual, so like a virtual menopause consultation service, for example, which is an interesting idea. Um, I know there is one in City in Hackney um, that offers okay. virtual engagement experience events and virtual group consultations. So it's a menopause specialist meeting with eight to 10 women at a time. It actually works really well. So there is a space for, for these virtual clinics, but 
a lot of um, kind of what we're seeing in terms of what women need, having coils fitted or, you know, some of some of these things obviously can't take place virtually. virtually yeah. But to establish a physical hub is quite costly. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. But um, I am hopeful. I, I think, yeah. I'm an optimist for sure. I know you are too. <laughs> I feel like you've got to be otherwise. Yeah. Why are you in this space? Yes. There are certainly days though where you're just like, am I banging my head against the wall? Am I just fighting a f- an, kind of a, a never ending mm. fight? Um, but I think it's always important to kind of take a step back and, and reflect on how far we've come. Like even the fact that we're sitting here right now and having conversation about women's health, talking openly about periods and the menopause, I just think is is a seismic seismic shift that is not really quantifiable, but such a big leap. So it's always, whenever I'm feeling down, I do like to take a step back and, and think about how far we've come. And yeah. that gives me hope for how far we can go. Yeah, oh, amazing. Yeah, I love that. I know that there was kind of a few different um, talking points that we wanted to get to today, but we do only have about five, six minutes left where we started a little bit late. So what I'd love to do is rather than ask the next question is just see if there was any one area that you'd like to focus on more in particular, just over the last few minutes, if there's anything we like, I really want to get this point across or, or talk about this topic. Yeah, so I guess maybe I can provide a, a bit of an overview or a brief overview of the research. Um, so the report and the kind of project that I'm undertaking on women's health economics throughout England will have three key kind of facets to it. The first facet will look at women's health inequalities throughout England, because obviously we know women's health or women are not a monolith. Um, so within women's health, there are obviously disparities based on socioeconomic status, um, location, geography, etc. So it'll assess the disparities within women's health throughout England. So that's strand one. Strand two is a macroeconomic assessment of obstetrics and gynecology services throughout the country. Um, again, we know women's health is not just ops and gyne. We know that women's health spans far beyond that. But we thought this was a very natural place to start, given kind of all that's going on in gynecology and maternity services. So that will be the kind of what you mentioned before, the quintessential for every one pound that you invest in these services, you can expect to see X pounds return on investment. The third facet of it um, will be a more kind of granular longitudinal um, piece of research into certain conditions. Um, so our focus for this piece of work um, will be on primary dysmenorrhea and heavy menstrual bleeding, so period pain, heavy menstrual bleeding. Uh, PCOS, the menopause, fibroids, endometriosis and adenomyosis, and infertility. I think those are, I don't know if I've missed any, but so what we'll do with those is we'll look at some of the things that we've talked about previously, where in a lot of cases, particularly for the primary and secondary dysmenorrhea and PCOS, women are kind of... having to bounce around the NHS to get any kind of treatment or even if they get to this point, a diagnosis, what does that look like in terms of their quality of life, their ability to go to work, to go to school, to undertake their caring responsibilities, whatever that looks like for the woman? How does that affect her ability to contribute to the economy? And then we also want to look at the cost of that to the NHS. So the cost of you know a woman bouncing around kind of going into multiple appointments because that's a cost for the NHS but that's also the time that she's not at work or not at school or not you know able to undertake her caring responsibilities or whatever that looks like um 
And also, if we can, and this is the part that's particularly interesting, if we can take a longitudinal approach to that. So, for example, if you're living with endometriosis or PCOS for 8 to 10 years, not receiving the proper treatment or diagnosis, how does that exacerbate things down the line for you in terms of your propensity to develop other conditions, multimorbidities, which are then much more costly to the NHS because there was no prevention, there was no diagnosis. So not only over that span of time are you not getting the treatment that you deserve, you're not getting, um, you're not being listened to, you're not receiving a diagnosis or, you know, whatever the treatment plan looks like. But then there's also that, like, longer-term, longer-term aspect to it where, I just think, I think it'll be so hard to quantify, but we should attempt to do something about that because down the line, there's there's so much. If we look at, I know we talked about PCOS. Um, PCOS, so he, oftentimes someone would go into their GP for erratic menstrual bleeding. Um, and PCOS is oftentimes seen as a gynecological condition, but it also involves insulin resistance. Um, uh, what else? What, insulin resistance, um, high blood pressure, cholesterol, like there are so many other elements to it, propensity to um, develop certain cancers down the line. And so it's just a matter of like, okay, if we had caught this way earlier, um, what could we have done differently to prevent all of these other conditions kind of that resulted or were exacerbated by not kind of addressing this which is such an important conversation. Yeah. It, I really do feel like we're just not, what's the saying, not seeing the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. When you know what we know about how, again, PCOS being a great, great example, and this has this internal snowball effect where women are more likely to develop other metabolic syndromes or autoimmune conditions down the line, why are we not focused on prevention or at least addressing it early because we know that that's going to save money further down the line and result in a happier healthier more productive workforce so as someone that works in prevention (laughs) you know nutritionist fitness professional the message of prevention 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 is obviously a message i absolutely love and i'm really excited to be armed with more yeah statistics and and research just a thanks to people like yourself to be able to kind of spread that message and get more people interested in actually being preventative with their healthcare rather than rather than reactional at a consumer level with clients and at a corporate level to to companies so again thank you so so much for coming on and and sharing all of that and what i'd absolutely love to do if you'd like to is is maybe circle back around to this in a few months time obviously we were cut a little bit short for time today so there's loads more i'd love to unpack with you but also i think it'd be really interesting to kind of do a where are we now in a few months time as a result of the stuff that that you're doing and other people are working on and we can kind of maybe have a little a little regroup and see what's changed in a few months if you'd be interested in booking that in let's do it absolutely amazing for for now just finish off by telling the listeners a little bit more where they can find out about yourself your work if maybe that's inspired anyone to consider a little bit of a career change like yourself banking to, to economics and female health um yeah feel free to tell people where they can find out a little bit more about you your work and what you do yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn, Bridget Gorham, G-O-R-H-A-M, um, and my Twitter should be the same. Uh, and feel free to reach out through DM. I'm always happy to have a conversation about this. 
Yeah, thank you for that, which I can really testify to. That's not an empty offer because, you know, we didn't know each other. And I was like, hey, your work looks awesome. Please, can we have a chat? And and here we are. So, yeah, thank you so much for giving us your time and, and giving me your time on the, the previous calls leading up to this in order to be able to, to facilitate this. So, yeah, again, I'm just super grateful. And thank you so, so much for being here. And thank you. Thanks for all the work that you're doing. If you've enjoyed today's episode, it would be amazing if you could do us a massive favor and leave us a review and even if possible, a comment. The reason why this is so useful for us is it allows us to know which type of content and which guests are best going to be relevant for you and your goals so that we can continue to make the podcast even better for you in the future. Thank you so much so far for all of your support on the Women's Wellness Show.